Well, good Tuesday morning to you, and thanks for tuning in to Real Talk at 8.30 Mountain Time. We don't start every show uh, the same way. Everyone, you know, we, we, we start the show as we feel so inclined, right? And Sam Brooks is getting uh, guest number one ready to go out of the gates. We, we typically schedule our first interview for 840 Mountain Time. You're listening later on the podcast. You're like, Jesperson, it doesn't matter. But for those that are joining us live, like the, everybody that was there first this morning, like Chris and Fatima and, and, and Audra and Jeff and Lauren and Tracy and Kim and a pizzeria and Tyson and Sandra and Kaylin and everybody's just saying hi to each other this morning. Those of you right uh, right below Kaylin on the text line are like, well, why'd you stop there? You know, Terry's going to be like, where's my shout out? And Riley and Blind Melon and Greg and Sherry and Mark and Len and Brenda and Debbie and Julia. You get the idea. Community comes together it's each and every day. You. It's a lot. It's, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I like, It's funny. I was OK. So yesterday I was actually listening to uh, your interview with the Podboard guys. Sam Brooks, everybody. Good morning. How's it going? Uh, and and you sort of talked about how it's this weird community that comes together. It's these people that have this like I didn't say discourse. weird. Not weird. You didn't say weird. You said lovely. You said wonderful. <laughs> you said I think you said the sensation is weird. The fact that it's not just vitriol it's nonstop amazing. is weird. It's, yeah. it's the most civil chats on and, the Internet. And I had to just take a moment and realize just like. I look forward to hanging out with these people on this chat line every single day. We do. It's like, it's weird. They're part of my day now. It's why we need there to be the official Real Talk kegger, uh, <laughs> where everyone's going to come together and we're going to get, and you don't have to drink. Uh, as a matter of fact, Sam would be thrilled if you didn't because there'd be more for him. That's true. Unless <laughs> for me to clean up, quite frankly. <laughs> no, you'd get the day off. Oh, thank yes, you. Yes, you would get the day. You would be, we would have people with palm, what do they call them, palm fronds, and people, you would be, you know, I might even pop by and feed you grapes just to say thank you for everything that you do. <laughs> anyway, we've got a great show in store. Uh, we're going to be so we'll pick up on some stories that we've covered over the past number of days. We're going to check in on some stories that that, uh, quite frankly, we haven't paid much attention to because there's a lot going on in the news cycle. So, uh, you know, yesterday, Sam mentioned our conversation with Stephen Brogarth. He's managing director of the Podboard 100. He checked in from Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, talking about uh, some of the, the voices that are being deplatformed, that are being muted, however you'd like to put it. I mean, Donald Trump, the most prominent one, but you know, about 70,000 accounts were pulled down uh, from Twitter, uh, mostly those that were spreading QAnon content and, and uh, a fascinating piece for the Intrepid podcast uh, by Amarnath Amarasingham, who's going to join us in just a second here. We've also heard from BlackRock. You know, <clears throat> BlackRock is, is the world's largest fund manager. They manage something like nine, just under nine trillion dollars, I think. Uh, they've talked even more aggressively. Their CEO, Larry Fink, who last year in his address to investors, and it seems like everybody pays attention to this guy when, when he, he gives his, it's like, it's like Warren Buffett, when they give their hot take on where the market's out of the market's going or where trends are going, people pay attention. Well, there's talk about uh, what they're doing in their portfolio and the reallocation of, of capital to investments with lower climate risk. And so we thought it might make sense to reach out to Derek Brower with Financial Times. He's going to chime in from London, England this morning. Very much looking forward to that. Jeff Dambicki for Vice has taken a look at a report commissioned by the Alberta government. It's well, it earned its own column 
uh, by the editorial board in the Globe and Mail today. So and, and and that's not a good thing. So if the war room is going, hey, we, we got him talking about Alberta in the Globe and Mail. This isn't the way you want it. Talking about conspiracies. And uh, anyway, we're going to get into that with Jeff Dembicki, who's taking a look at this. This report sort of honing in. It's, it's got the crosshairs on some climate journalists. That's exactly what Jeff Dembicki is. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. And, and then we're going to take on the plight of long-term care centers, uh, retirement homes, whatever you want to call them. We're, and I don't dismiss them. What, what I mean by that is that there are different models of provision, including private long-term care centers or private retirement homes, facilities that claim that they're being shut out of the vaccination process, that they're not being treated the same as public care centers for people uh, in the autumn of their lives, as my dad once so beautifully put it. So we're going to talk to uh, some care providers and get their take. Of course, a lot of stories on vaccines, a a Canadian company, as a matter of fact, kicking off some trials today. And we're going to get to those. That's coming up in the newscast in about 25 minutes. Want to remind you that each and every day, this program is proud uh, to have the title sponsor Bitcoin Well on board. This is the year, I think, that's going to be the biggest one yet for Bitcoin Well. They're moving locations. They've just seen their staff boom because demand is booming and they're going public. And we'll have more details on that in weeks and months to come based out of Edmonton. But with Bitcoin ATMs across the country, Bitcoin Well is the safest and most reputable way. Also, the easiest way to buy and sell your Bitcoin, most especially if you could use some advice. You can check out Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, we're excited that uh, Amarnath Amarasingham has uh, made time for us this morning right out of the gates here on Real Talk and assistant professor in the School of Religion at Queen's University, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, an associate fellow at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization, and an associate fellow at the Global Network on Extremism and technology also the author of a piece that was published in the intrepid podcast you can find it at intrepidpodcast.com does deplatforming work a quick survey of literature in the wake of the capitol hill attack my friend thank you so much for joining us and a good morning to you morning thanks for having me so how, how are you wrapping your mind i mean considering your area of study your area of expertise and in this case your area of commentary are you still processing like everybody else what you saw in Washington, D.C. on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I think leading up to the attack on the 6th, um, I was in meetings, you know, with uh, with members of the U.S. government, with different think tanks and organizations back in October talking about uh, election violence. And so I don't think um, in some ways this was unexpected. I think there was some worry that leading up to uh, the election in particular, but then also inauguration, that there would be uh, some sort of violence. We weren't expecting um, thousands of people to storm the Capitol, but I think uh, there was there was some fear that there there was going to be some attack. So um, it wasn't it wasn't uh, massively surprising that uh, we saw what we saw. What was it? I mean, what was when when you're sitting around the in these meetings, sitting around these tables back in October, or even before then? What were you basing you know some of the prognostications on? Was it was it activity? on social media was it was it some of the stuff on forums was it just obvious observations of what you saw around you 
Um, all of the above, I would say. I mean, the the online chatter leading up, uh, you know, August, September, October um, was basically saying that, and and it was largely Trump himself basically saying that the election is going to be stolen, that the election is rigged, etc. And there was a lot of echoes of that kind of content saying um, what, what we're going to see in November, almost predicting um, kind of the birth of conspiracy, uh, conspiratorial thinking that what we're going to see in November is going to be rigged and th- things are going to be stolen from us um, and that we're ready to, um, you know, be there for you, Mr. Trump, and that sort of content. Um, and so uh, there was a lot of priming. There's a lot of readiness. There's a lot of arming. Uh, people were live, you know, tweeting very openly about stockpiling weapons and um, getting ready for some sort of event that's going to happen in November. Um, nothing happened in November, which was a, which was a surprising thing. And I wrote about it in uh, Slate magazine that I think a lot of their own conspiratorial thinking kicked the can down the road, right? And in, in a way, they're saying that Trump has a plan. Don't worry. In November, in January. Uh, we're not going to see an inauguration. Um, there's no way Biden's going to get inaugurated. Um, by uh, Trump has a secret plan in the works, etc. That sort of conspiratorial thinking basically um, kept everybody home. And and so, leading up to January 6th, when the elections were uh, the the votes were actually certified, um, I think people were starting to get more nervous. And and we saw what we saw. As part of this uh, this research that you do, these observations that you make, can can you take us into the process? Can, can you take us into where where you're monitoring these discussions, how you gain access to them if they're readily available? Uh, give us a sense of of how this happens, how people are connecting, how information is shared. Yeah, I mean, I think on the far right, uh, militia groups, the Boogaloo Boys, QAnon content um, was quite out in the open for all of, you know, from 2016 onwards, uh, from the Trump administration onwards. So Facebook, Instagram, Instagram was huge. Facebook was huge. Twitter was huge. Um, and they found each other. They formed these kind of uh, very vibrant online communities um, where they talk to each other constantly. They're, they're you know, on, in their online spaces constantly. And then uh, fairly recently leading up to the election and definitely after January 16, uh, January 6th, we saw kind of a massive deplatforming, right? And, and what we saw um, as some of these more quote unquote influencers, far right influencers like Laura Loomer and Milo and, and, and people like that were taken off of mainstream platforms, um, they moved to kind of more specialty platforms, I guess, like Parler, Gab, Telegram. Um, and there they had much less of a following, but you could see that uh, some of the content was getting, uh, some of the content was untouched, right? Because these were far right platforms in, in, in some sense, particularly when we're talking about Gab and Parler. Um, and so there wasn't the same kind of uh, takedown policy that you would see with Facebook and Twitter. And so the, a lot of these guys, um, a lot of these influencers were quite vibrant um, and, and were, were posting content untouched. And so uh, across the social media social media spectrum, um, you saw these communities start to form, talking very much out in the open about anti-immigration, anti-refugee policy, uh, the need to fight back against the stolen election. Um, you know that that Trump is a kind of savior figure in the White House for them. Uh, if you look at the QAnon, QAnon content, um, and that him getting. Uh, unjustly removed um, was something that they had to stand up for and do something about. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I think it, I think it was CNN that did this. If I remember correctly, it was on Jake Tapper just to, to ascribe credit where it belongs. But but they they were paralleling. They had two video feeds, and, and number one was what Donald Trump was saying uh, yeah. behind that glass on the sixth, and then the other was was video clips of people that had compromised the Capitol buildings. 
people that had smashed out windows and kicked in doors and, and, and in some cases injured. I mean, in some, five people were killed for Pete's sake. But but what they were repeating uh, was a lot of the same language. Right. It was it was it was like they had been commissioned uh, to do this, like they were foot soldiers uh, in a way. Is this any different? I mean, in, in your experience in studying radicalization, extremism, I mean, where, where your studies have taken you and, and where your area of expertise has, has prompted you to to study. Is this any different than, than anywhere else in the world where communities of people are radicalized? I mean, is it, is it the exact same thing? You saw some people, including members of the news media, the mainstream media, you know, referring to it as a protest, for example, until some people started planting their flags and saying, let's call it what it is. This is terrorism. No, I think um, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there is, there was no real difference in terms of the process of radicalization um, with these individuals. What's unique, of course, is that we these are usually sub-national organizations, right? So ISIS, Al Qaeda, um, uh, Blood and Honor, Combat 18. They're not. They don't usually have a representative in the White House, right? And I think that was the that, that was the main difference here. Um, and I'm not saying uh, Trump is a neo-Nazi or anything like that, even though some would uh, some have argued that. But I, I do think um, what was what was unique about him was kind of his uh, charismatic authority. Right. We haven't really seen, particularly even in the U.S., um, aside from Obama, uh, someone kind of command charismatic authority to the point where their words are acted upon in the same way, because the U.S., we don't usually think of the U.S., um, as a kind of charismatic uh, authority-led country, right? And it's not Iran. It's not um, some of these other movements like uh, People's Temple or Jonestown. You know, it, it, it's it's there's multiple branches of government. It's fairly boring bureaucracy. Um, but Trump, in a way, changed some of that dynamic where he he himself. Um, became kind of an authority figure and inspirational in, in a way. And so he, he, you know, he, he himself criticized his own branches of government, um, his own um, employees. And so a lot of followers, particularly in the QAnon space, started seeing him and him alone um, as, as, their, as their leader. Not, not that they were, there was some sort of patriotism to the United States and all the structures that, in, that, that entails. But him, him, and him alone. Yeah, and and maybe his interpretation of the United States, which is, has has been exactly. sort of, I think, shown itself through in a lot of the comments that have been made. So when it comes to deplatforming here, I mean, this, as we said, you know, intrepid sort of compiled people should follow you on Twitter and and check out your timeline because you've you've done an unbelievable job of sort of categorizing a bunch of research and literature. People can really dig into this, including some of the research that you've been doing. Uh, but but you know, people would look and and suggest, I think, that Donald Trump could be and probably is seen as a martyr uh, by probably millions of people who are ticked off that he's been muted or deplatformed on on everything from Twitter to to, to Shopify, uh, for that matter. They're taking a look at, at, at what the power that Amazon had over Parler, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, it, and it prompts that question, does deplatforming work or does it maybe make things worse? Is this pushing things back underground, back into the shadows? What's your opinion? <laughs> I mean, I think I think what we learned um, so in in about late 2015, the same thing happened to ISIS, right? And and so they they were kind of quite vibrant and open on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, what have you, WhatsApp. Um, and in late 2015, they were massively deplatformed and taken off taken offline. And and we noticed a few things. One is that the kind of networks were disrupted, right? This kind of online community that they had set up over two three years, where they all knew each other, they were DMing, they were 
traveling to fight in Syria, that whole network was was disrupted and set in disarray. So when they came back online, um, in a way, they didn't know who to trust. They didn't know if the the person that they just found online is the same person they've been talking to for two years or whether now it was an FBI agent. And so that kind of um, that disrupted the trust networks in, in, in interesting ways. Um, then, yeah, they moved to uh, they moved to these kind of more specialized platforms like Telegram, where they set up set up shop. Um, and in a way, I would say it further radicalized the people who were on Telegram, but not everybody went to Telegram, right? And that, I think, is the key point in that a lot of the, and if we look at the Trump space, it, it's a, the, the pro-Trump kind of MAGA crowd varies from hardcore um, you know, three percenters, oath keepers, to basically 65-year-old grandmothers in, t- in cute t-shirts, right? And so it's not the same dynamic. And so I, I do think that the diversity of followers, the diversity of people who are involved in this, um, some of them will come back online in mainstream uh, platforms and choose to behave, right? And choose to kind of follow the terms and conditions of Twitter and Facebook. Um, others who are uh, kind of inc- more pissed off, I guess, would go, will find themselves in more darker corners of the internet. Um, and it's, it's, not, it's not entirely accurate to say that we have no eyes on them. I mean, I'm in basically all of these platforms I've been on, uh, it used to be in uh, ISIS channels where I was almost convinced that everyone else was either an FBI agent or a journalist or a researcher, mm-hmm. that, that, we, that we actually outnumbered the ISIS fighters themselves. Um, and so it, it, it is, for people who are watching this stuff, it's, uh, we do have eyes in, in these spaces. It's just a question of, um, are they forming the same level of community um, and dedication to the cause in these more darker corners? And with the far right, I'll add, um, they get a lot of meaning and purpose from arguing against liberals, right? And so they, that's one of the things that you'll notice in, in their commentary is they love being on Twitter and Facebook because they get to argue against the other. Whereas if you take them to the dark corners of the internet and they're just talking to themselves and talking to people they already agree with, it's not particularly satisfying. And so um, I, th- I think they, they're going to try very hard to come back into the mainstream just so they can, you know, quote unquote, own the libs. Um, and and the, the, because Telegram is you and 10 friends basically agreeing with each other for weeks on end. And that's not particularly fun. That's a really interesting point that you make there, uh, Amarnath. Uh, on our uh, live chat right now, the folks that are that are tuned in watching us live right now on YouTube, Race Space says, you know, uh, Donald Trump gaslit them to expect a stolen election. You know, the endless court yeah. cases that they lost added up to the narrative that things were stacked up against them. Here's an interesting question. Uh, uh, Mana is watching this morning. A good morning to her. She says, you know, I, I wonder what the chatter's like now, now that their stories were proven wrong. Is there still evidence of a blind loyalty? Amarnath, what are you seeing? Um, it depends who you're talking about. So I think in, in the kind of a hardcore far right space, um, there's actually been some criticism of Trump from the very beginning that uh, this this loyalty that people had with Trump was um, destined to be uh, disappointing that Trump is just another politician like anyone else. But in the QAnon space, um, they basically saw him as a savior, right? A kind of very, in, in a very religious sort of way. And so there you're seeing a bit of factionalism. Some people um, are basically saying, you know, the, the whole thing was a lie. I was duped. I wasted four years of my life following this um, 
bizarre conspiracy theory. But others are basically kicking the can down the road again. They're saying um, Trump has a plan. There is a plan. Have faith. Um, that and then there's more bizarre conspiracy theories about um, you know uh, lizard people and uh, face shifting and that actually Biden Biden is actually really Trump and Trump is actually really Biden and they changed faces etc. So um, uh, the the full spectrum of crazy um, is is kind of out on display. But I, I think for the mo- most people. Um, there is a kind of reckoning that happened with the inauguration when Biden was sworn in um, that, oh, maybe I had just been wasting my life for the last four years following this bizarre theory down the ra- different da- rabbit holes. Um, so we'll see when the where the dust settles on this. We've got some we've got an interesting trend from from viewers right now that are talking about the the role that that religion may or may not have played in this. I mean, you're you're a professor in the School of Religion at Queens University. Um, many people talking about evangelicals and essentially, if I can paraphrase what our audience is asking, uh, you know, did it help here? I don't know. Did it help legitimize or did it help mainstream the message that so many evangelical faith leaders in the United States? I think of Franklin Graham is probably the classic example, essentially not only enabled, but almost christened uh, Donald Trump as their leader. What role did that play in, in allowing this, you know, these people to mobilize and feel empowered? Yeah, no, it's, it's it was huge. I mean, I think the the evangelical support base for Trump, quite surprisingly, was strong throughout from 2016 onwards, um, and and so the evangelical community has been quite you know front and center in electing a lot of Republican uh, leaders over the years, and so they they stood stuck by stood by him. Um, even though you know he was a bit um, out of character, I guess for someone you would support as an evangelical. But I think the 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 kind of conversation in the evangelical space was more so about the Supreme Court nominations, uh, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, and and that sort of thing. So they saw Trump as a kind of vehicle that they could use to get what they really wanted done. And so then so the support was was there. Um, in the more conspiratorial spaces, um, they see Trump himself as kind of God appointed, and so they they think. That he's, uh, kill you know, uh, cleaning up the deep state. That he's rescuing children from democratic satanic pedophiles. That he's, um, that he he was kind of the leader that they've all been waiting for, um, and so that it, that I think we're still waiting for how the dust settles on that, and and. Part of the reason we're still waiting is because of all the deplatforming that Trump has experienced. And so he wasn't able to kind of contextualize and, and put new ideas out there and interpret things for them. Um, and so his absolute silence um, on every single platform and his inability to kind of speak publicly um, has set things in a bit of disarray. So they're, they're kind of waiting to see what the next move is. But um, so it's still a bit early to say what some of the more diehard um, conspiratorial followers of Trump, like where they end up. But I mean, you know, millenarianism, apocalypticism um, has been part, has woven, has been woven into the politics of the U.S. for some time. And so the kind of end time aspirations, seeing America as a shining city on the hill, um, you know, all of that is part and parcel of American politics. And so, uh, th- so it wasn't surprising in a way that um, Trump and QAnon and all these things kind of just found residence with each other right because yeah. it's always been part of uh, american conversation well and if, and if you do perceive yourself or believe yourself to be in the end times it kind of changes your mentality i think your mindset on a lot of things um doctor yeah. you you've already touched on this a little bit but 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 we're left hanging you know wondering what 
what comes of all this. People talk about, you know, Trumpism or the movement or the power he may still have or the fact that somebody else could easily pick up the mantle. Uh, perhaps somebody even more publicly compelling. Um, these are people that will will believe themselves to be at least politically homeless, depending on where the Republican Party goes in, in an attempt to heal and, and 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 win back that White House. And and of course, people that will feel to a certain degree, maybe ideologically unfocused. Uh, so where does this go six months or a year or two years from now? Um, I think I mean, I think it depends on two things, um, depends on whether uh, what Trump does and says, I think whether he comes back on a particular platform, whether he sets up a third party, um, uh, what kind of platform he ends up on with his megaphone and what he says will have an impact on where this movement goes. Um, secondly, I think the pandemic um, will have an impact. And so we saw a massive uptick in March, April um, of radical right, far right content in the online space. That was partly because I think people were just home on the internet <laughs> more, but I do think um, there was also a kind of disruption of norms that happened with these people. You know, small businesses were uh, were harmed. Um, their kind of everyday life was thrown asunder, and and so there was a kind of res angry response to the pandemic. And so, depending on how that ends up in 2021, um, the vaccine rollout, et cetera. Um, people going back to work, kids going back to school, I think you'll notice a bit of a downward spiral and a bit of back to normalcy, hopefully, um, as well. So I think a lot of that depends on where the pandemic goes and, and where Trump ends up um, in, with his megaphone um, and, and then what he decides to do with that megaphone. Uh, Dr. Amarnath Amarasingham is a professor at School of Religion, Queens University, an associate fellow at Global Network on Extremism and Technology, senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Uh, we've linked to his Twitter on mine, and we're grateful for your appearance here on the show. Thanks for helping us make sense of this. Thank you. It's great. Real talkers, uh, over to you. I'm curious to know what you make of uh, what you just heard. This is, uh, uh, to a certain degree, I, I, you know, I mean, it's enlightening uh, and it's reassuring, I think, to know that that people are, are studying this and, and trying to make sense of it, um, to reach these people, to find them where they're at, to monitor for security purposes and otherwise to understand the psyche. And then on the flip side, it's very unnerving. I would think, uh, you know, an individual like our leadoff guest there, uh, Dr. Amarasingham would probably have nights where he lies awake staring at the ceiling based on some of the things he sees and some of the things he reads. Where are you at on this? We're keeping an eye on the hashtag RealTalkRJ. Uh, if you're on Twitter, we'd love to hear from you there. That hashtag, of course, powered by the team at Park Power uh, for coming up on 10 years now. They've been providing Internet, natural gas and electricity in the province of Alberta, they're owned by Albertans. They employ Albertans in their call and customer service centers, and they donate 10% of their profits to local nonprofits, to charities. Right now, if you go to parkpower.ca, whether you're a residential or a commercial customer, if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK, you'll get 70 bucks off your first bill. No strings attached. 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. Also want to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers is getting set to open their 15th Alberta location. You have yet to walk into a Friesen Brothers, right, Sam? You've that not yet correct. been. Oh, my gosh. I'm going I'm to bring you the first time. That is that, that's that's my great shame on real. Time, no, no, no. It's not, not shame been in a in a Friesen. Brothers. We're not shaming anybody that has never yet been to a Friesen Brothers. We're excited. We're excited. I'm, I'm going to walk in with you. I want to I want to take you there myself and I want to just watch your face as you walk in. Here's the thing. The whole purpose of today's announcement is just to tell you they have a date. 
They have circled a date on the calendar. I had a meeting with them yesterday electronically, and they have empowered me to tell you for the first time ever. This is the first time ever this is being announced right here on Real Talk Breaking News. March 5th, the Friesen Brothers is going to open just off the Anthony Hendy, Rabbit Hill Road. March 5th, Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Uh, taking a look at our live chat here, uh, I'm curious to see. It's amazing to see so many of you engaging in the conversations that we're having. Uh, Joanne says, you know, uh, I found that when I watched, I haven't seen this show, The Family on Netflix, it answered many questions about uh, Trump being the chosen one and how politics is tied to religion. It's horrifying, but very educational. Uh, we see politics tied to religion everywhere, I think. Um, I, I thought there were some interesting comments that were made about how, how Joe Biden uh, may be a president that can bring Americans together because he is perceived as a strong man of faith. You saw that family Bible that he that he d- took the oath of office on a massive Bible that's been in the Biden family for generations and generations. And and he talks about his deep faith. And I saw some political commentators saying, you know, typically for for for, for people of faith, especially in the southern United States that perceive the Republican Party to be the party For people of faith, they perceive the Democratic Party and Democrats, for that matter, uh, to be more of a secularist party, to be to to be a party of 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 people without faith. And they thought some of these pundits that have commented on it, that maybe Joe Biden could be one as a strong man of faith or a man of strong faith, let me say, and and a Democratic president that potentially uh, that could be a bridge over which people could come together across party lines. Interesting. Randy's watching in this morning says, you know, people who support things like this, you know, this Patriot Party, that's what they're talking about with Donald Trump are the same type of people who are supporting Alberta's Wild Rose Independence Party. Yeah, Fatima says that Bible looked older than America. It did, didn't it? Uh, Heavy D says, you know, there's way too much religion in politics already. Goes on to say that churches, you know, pointing out churches still don't pay taxes. I wonder, I wonder how the real talkers would feel about churches paying taxes. Do you have a strong opinion on this? Do you? I, I have. I have. I, I understand some people, you know, believe that churches should pay taxes. Um, it's also a community of people. I don't even know if this is a strong argument. I don't know if I'm. This might be me just kind of trying to put another perspective out there. But these are people that are tithing. They're donating to their church, to their faith community, on their post-tax income, their after-tax income. Do you have a strong opinion on this? Do you have a strong feeling on this by chance? It's actually something that I probably haven't really thought about too much. So, I mean, yeah. the short answer is no, I don't have a smaller opinion. I mean, part of me is saying churches are buildings that use services in the municipalities that they're in. I mean, there has to be some money put into the coffers to do that. So I think that, you know, on a very primal, basic level, just to be a part of the community, you're going to have to put some money in the can. Okay, so look at this. Uh, This is a this is an absolutely unscientific poll. Okay, this is not a scientific poll. Uh, I'm all, I'm I'm still waiting for one person to say churches should not pay taxes. <laughs> wow, uh, Scott, yes they should. Amber, yes. Tracy, uh, yes. Lorraine, absolutely. Judy, yes. Jeff, they should pay tax. Race Pace says mega churches are businesses. I mean, geez, look in the United States. Look at Joel Osteen. I mean, that guy's got more money than God. Well, yeah, and on that scale, it's like 
the church, like literally, the church is becoming a scheme for tax evasion. Well, those are guys, and these are guys that have like a fleet of planes, and that's you know, it's and 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 demand that their congregation buy them another plane. Yeah, Michelle. Yeah, they should pay taxes. S. McFury says tax all religious institutions. Tawny says I've always felt they should. Jacqueline says they should. Wow, this isn't even close. How about this? Greg says the religious service should be taxed, but their charitable service should be tax free. I mean, those should be one in the same in theory. Are, but are, are, is what you're saying that churches should actually have to open their books? Dave wonders, do charities pay taxes? <laughs> this is amazing. I I blew it with this list. This viewer who corrected me on the on the pronunciation of their name. I remember on a previous chat and I didn't write it down. And now I'm going to blow it again. Is it Eris said? Drea, Eris Adrea, I'm sorry, says, I don't think that even I don't think there are even members of my church who would argue that churches should not pay taxes. Well, maybe your pastor probably would argue against it. Starlight Sessions says our government under the arts and culture branch has has been setting things up here, uh, presently creating grants for the relaunch of faith based organizations, giving money to churches and nothing for arts and culture. Starlight Sessions says tax them. Okay, this is this is I'm just reading. This is not even morning. Bacon says I would attend the Joel Osteen Richer Than Jesus Tour 2021. I don't think he'd spell it. He would call it more like the prosperity tour. It would be the prosperity tour. Arlene than Jesus is a little on the nose. It's a little he might be might be playing with fire there. Arlene says when religion interferes with politics, they need to pay taxes. Mark, see, Mark makes an interesting point out of Salt Lake City as well. He says, you know, the mega churches would have no problem, but I might worry about the tiny congregations. Yeah. I mean, if you have like 11 people at the tiny little country church in in, you know, I'm trying to pick like a, a tiny, charming little community. But, you know, you that, that's a different story than the church. Well, but I mean, the other thing is like the tax structures is already set up to handle that. You know, <clears throat> if you if you were to look at them under the same lens as corporations, giant corporations pay way more taxes than small startups do. Yeah, fair it's, enough. It's, well, it's indexed profit, to the amounts right? of profit. Yeah. Right. James says it would be the end of my church uh, if we're if we were to be taxed. Um, Mike says, as if Jason Kenny would ever let anybody taxing his precious churches happen. I and mean, this is something, this is not anything, but these, these are the conversations we can have on real talk, right? Because yeah, obviously we, we can talk about sales tax. No Alberta politician is going to talk about it. We can talk about taxing churches. No Alberta politician would ever talk about that. We can talk about moving to one school board, Right. Why, why, are we, why are we paying board chairs on public and Catholic school boards hundreds of thousands of dollars each in salary? Why don't we amalgamate the boards? That's a political hot button. Everybody talks about the third rail in politics, right? Ooh, depending on your jurisdiction, that's what the issue is. Uh, here in the Western provinces, especially in the prairies, there's like nine third rails of Alberta politics. You don't want to touch them, but we'll touch them on the show, which is the best. Uh I think that probably we have time to take a quick look at the news before our next guest. Is he ready to go? Joining us from London, England. I'm excited about this. Let's get into the headlines, Sam, real quick. Well, on the vaccine front, and we'll be touching on these stories. Of course, there's that new variation everybody's paying attention to. It's landed in Canada. What does it mean? It's coming up on Real Talk, but a made-in-Canada vaccine to protect against COVID-19 began clinical trials today. 
in Toronto, uh, based out of TO Providence Therapeutics, said that three shots are going to be given to 60 different volunteers during the first phase of the trial. 15 placebo, 45 will get the vaccine. And then get this, the company's actually purchased a site in Calgary to mass produce the vaccine. We'll keep you posted on that. As mentioned, on the investment front, BlackRock, the world's largest fund manager, accelerating its push, it says, to reduce the risk of climate change for its clients, asking corporate leaders to disclose how their companies will fare in a net zero economy and selling its stakes in those that fail to live up to heightened standards. This per CEO Larry Fink. Now get this, from January to November of last year, investors around the world took about $288 billion, uh, plowing it into mutual funds and exchange-traded funds with sustainable assets. That's double, almost double the tally of 2019, the year before. And we'll ask our next guest about that story in just a moment. And wanted to pay attention to this. Everybody seems to be talking about this BC couple. We got a photo before they pulled down their Facebook. Uh, this is Ekaterina Baker. She's an actor, Rod Baker. Uh, her man is a uh, chief executive officer, CEO of Great Canadian Gaming Corporation. He stepped down after they were both charged under Yukon's Emergency Measures Act with breaking quarantine rules and misleading authorities. They flew into Yukon posing as motel workers to get vaccinated. It's, it's really actually unbelievable. Uh, they checked into a hotel. They didn't obviously quarantine. They flow into they fly into Beaver Creek. They show up at the clinic. They say they're employed there. It's a it's a remote hamlet on the Alaskan border, Alaska and Yukon. One health clinic, one nurse, and one receptionist. A six person medical team flew in to run the clinic, and so did these two. Now, before you feel sorry about Mr. Baker that's resigning from his gig at Great Canadian Gaming Corporation. It's It's been revealed that the terms of severance, which have not been disclosed, indicate that he stands to receive more than $28 million from a private equity fund that's acquiring Great Canadian. So I think he's going to be just fine. Except for any time that anybody Googles their name. Imagine being her, being an actor, and like, you know, people are like, what, what's, uh, you know, what past work have you done? How, what what might we know you from? Here, let's Google your name. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. We're good. We're good. No need to Google my name. Uh, you I'm may have. Sorry, if you if you're like if your job is trading on your public reputation, and then you're gonna do this. Like, I think you knew the risks getting into it. Hundred percent. Not good. Not good. Is Derek ready to rock and roll? Derek Brower is the U.S. Energy Editor at the Financial Times, and. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning as well. His roots are in Alberta, Derek. So you 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 know exactly how to speak directly uh, to the people that are tuned into Real Talk this morning, despite the fact that you're checking in from halfway around the world. Welcome. What's your background, and where are we talking to you from today? Uh, I'm in uh, Bucks in Derbyshire right now, which is about um, two hours north of London. I'm uh, half Canadian. You wouldn't tell from my accent, but I. A big family in in Wainwright and pretty much all over the province. So, yeah, I know I know a lot about Alberta and I've been following the oil side of 
Alberta story for a long time as well. Well, this is uh, why we're particularly uh, excited to have you here this morning. You understand the lay of the land here, so to speak. You certainly understand the energy economy and and, and the greater economy as a whole. We've been talking uh, briefly in our newscast about uh, Larry Fink's uh, release with BlackRock, talking about how they intend to move around or at least manage their close to $9 trillion in assets. And, And of course, I don't have to tell you that energy news has been front and center here lately with with stories of coal mining in the Rocky Mountains, the cancellation by President Joe Biden of Keystone XL. How do you begin to make sense of it all as you're trying to identify trends? Well, I mean, it's where do you start? I mean, we are in the midst of an energy transition. I mean, that's the first thing to say. Uh, People might not like it. Um, People might not believe in it, but it's happening. The train has has left the station on that front and the pandemic has accelerated some of these shifts. Uh, it's made things a lot worse for some people who are in, in the midst of this shift. Uh, and now Joe Biden's election is, is, is kind of put rockets underneath it. So, I mean, this is happening. This, that's, that's the first thing to say about the energy transition. It's not going to be kind to everybody. It could be messy. It will involve some complicated politics, like the kind that you see over uh, Keystone XL or Trans Mountain expansion. You know, all those kinds of uh, difficult uh, projects that, you know, Decisions based on decisions that were taken 10 years ago before a lot of this started to change. Um, so, I mean, that's the first thing I would say, and that's the most important thing to understand is that whatever Canada tries to say right now, it can't stop what is a global movement, and it's one that is moving away from fossil fuels um, towards clean energy, and it's going at at a pretty um, pretty pretty good clip right now. Well, Derek, I think one of the things that a lot of people will have a hard time reconciling is is the trend of where the, the world is moving and where investment is going. Uh, but at the same time, the, the insistence, and I think it's fair to say to a certain degree, the reality that global demand uh, for oil and gas remains strong and is forecasted to ring strong for, for the next number of decades, depending on who you talk right. to. So, so how do those two marry? Well, I mean, they, you know, the world is a complex place. You can have oil demand rising for the next you know, five or more years, and uh, the transition will still be happening. I mean, this is the really, really subtle thing about it is that, you know, the oil industry could be entering some of its best years in, in a funny way in terms of investments in the equities, in terms of um, a rapid rise in demand as we recover from the pandemic. You know, those things can all be true at the same time as the imperative uh, to behind climate policy, uh, the imperative of investors who are seeking, uh, you know, stocks and companies to invest in that are going to capture some of the upside from the energy transition. All those things can be happening at the same time. And in fact, you could have a situation where, because of the energy transition, because so much investment is is flocking away from oil and gas and away from coal towards those clean energy sources, you could have a, a period where you know, there isn't actually enough supply in in the world because consumers like like me and you, I don't know what you drive, but I still drive a diesel-powered engine. Consumers like us are still dependent on the oil and gas, um, you know, for our daily lives. So consumers eventually may catch up, but the market itself is moving, as I said, at a rate of not. It's, it's really happening pretty quickly. Wall Street, uh, you know, as you mentioned, BlackRock, you know, the investors have pretty much decided that the energy transition is where it's at. And that, in turn, will decide what happens to these companies. 
So yeah. So what do you say to? I mean, so someone's watching this morning, or they're listening to the podcast later, and and they go, you know, I I inherited, or I've invested, and I've I've you know, I've my my entire nest egg, or 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 at least as much as my financial planner would allow me, my nest egg is very energy stock heavy, and for a lot of years it looked like we were going to be sitting pretty, and 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 now we just don't know what to do. What would you say to these people? This is a big deal. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at it as an investment, then I'd say you're probably going to do okay for the next little bit. Uh, because as I say, there may be a shortage of oil and gas in the next year or two, and that will give the illusion that there's some kind of um, rally underway that will be sustained for over the long, long term. I mean, that's the kind of financial side of it. I think there is an opportunity to be investing in, in oil and gas stocks, for example. I mean, I, I'm not really predicting here, but I'm not even allowed to predict. Um, but I would say there is certainly a movement out there that says, look, for, there is a last hurrah coming in oil because there's not being enough invested in the supply side. Consumers haven't caught up with where the market's at. And so there's going to be a supply crunch at some stage. Fine. Um, that should support a rise in in uh, stocks and shares of, of energy companies. I think if I could widen it out a bit, I think there's another question, which is what do you do about people whose livelihoods still depend on this sector, um, who are in good, honest jobs, the kind of you know thousand people who just lost their job or about to lose their jobs um, because the Keystone XL pipeline won't be built. Well, you know, there I think governments really, especially the Canadian government, the Alberta government, they need to be first honest with their, their publics about how this is happening, uh, that it isn't going to stop, that climate policy is real, that those things are going to change facts on the ground ultimately. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is they need to start preparing and helping people adjust to this so that people who are at the moment in good jobs well-paid jobs in the oil and gas sector, in the coal industry, they're not left behind. They still have some kind of, uh, you know, something to look forward to, an industry to rely on, something to pay their families to, to you know, to keep bread on the table. Yeah, there's there's been a real lack of of discussion, of meaningful discussion, I think, around that of, of transitioning skilled workers uh, from one industry to another. And I don't know if in part that's because of, of, of a government's hesitance to push that messaging or to encourage those programs. And I don't know if in part, if, if maybe it has something to do with with individuals themselves uh, that have only ever worked in one industry that understand one industry. I, I'm not talking about the the 26 year old that expects that, mm. you know, she still has 30 years ahead of her, her career. But but what about the, the 59 year old that says, I don't I don't know if you can teach this old dog new tricks. I'm, I'm not sure about this transition. There's still, you know, in coal in particular, you know, I talked to the president of the, the Canadian Coal Association who, who was quick to point out. He said, listen, I'm a fourth generation miner. Like that was something that, that Robin Campbell's very proud of in talking about this. And and, and they see a, a, a sustained demand in this case for metallurgical coal and and, and they can't Mm -hmm. understand why people would be talking about you know if i can quote derek you know you know solar panels that aren't even going to work 18 hours a day up here in the canadian north never mind when the sun's not shining right that's that kind of conversation that i've witnessed a thousand times sure sure i mean look i wouldn't retrain the 59 year old i'd tell the 59 year old your job is still going to be there you're going to be needed there's still going to be lots of pipelines to to work on there's still going to be an oil industry i mean the oil industry isn't going away it's just that the growth years of the oil industry are now starting to peter out. That's that's the difference. And that makes a huge difference to investors because when an industry stops being an area of growth, you need to attract value investors and so on. There's a whole theory of, of the way markets work. But growth may not be in oil and gas anymore. That doesn't mean there aren't still going to be good jobs in it, especially in, in uh, provinces like Alberta where there's so much infrastructure to be maintained. 
there's so much infrastructure ultimately to decommission and there is still going to be new oil supply that's needed. This is when we talk about an energy transition, we're not talking about oil and gas going away tomorrow. We're talking about finding ways to mitigate the harm that's caused by fossil fuels. That's one thing. We're talking about finding new sources of energy and we're talking about unwinding uh, our dependence on fossil fuels. So that in practical terms means that Alberta, you know, Canada may, may be exporting 4 million barrels a day to the US at the moment. It may be exporting 4 million barrels a day indefinitely to the US. So, I mean, we have to put the energy concept, energy transition into context. It doesn't mean the death of this industry. People shouldn't be alarmed that if your job, as, as you know, family members of mine have jobs working on, you know, as, as welders in, in the oil patch in East Central Alberta, their jobs aren't going away. Things are getting a bit harder right now because of the crash but they still provide an essential service to the Alberta economy. It's just that the future for Alberta can no longer, it's not, it wouldn't seem to me anyway, wise to pin a long-term future on the oil and gas industry when the opportunity is now so clearly in alternative forms of energy, when you know, the Canada's biggest customer south of the border is speaking. You know, I interviewed uh, Seamus O'Regan, the, the federal energy minister on Friday, and as he put it, you know, the, the needs of the the uh, the client have changed. They, you know, they want something different now, and we have to listen to them. And I think that's right. You know, the the U.S., the biggest oil and gas market in the world, has decided that it's you know they elected a president who said it's time to transition away from the oil industry. Um, there will still be lots of oil consumed in the U.S. for a long time to come, and Canada will still be in a position to supply that. But the future for Canada should also include finding the renewable energies that it can export to the U.S., finding a way of being a partner in the energy transition with the U.S. You know, that can go from Ontario to Alberta. Um, there is opportunity there, huge opportunity, but it needs a long-term plan as well, not just fighting the the war, the culture wars, if you like, over pipelines that started maybe in 2005 and, and it still seem to be raging in Canada at the moment. Well, and, and we're still using the same arguments here in Alberta that we used in 2005 unsuccessfully, quite frankly, the, the arguments around ethical oil. Maybe, maybe if we have time here, Derek, uh, I want to respect the time that we've asked you for, but but maybe we'll get into that, why that argument seems to ring hollow. Um, if you're just tuning in, Derek Brower is the U.S. Energy Editor of the Financial Times. He's covered energy from across the world for 20 years. So, so Canadians are, are wondering, you know, what does our relationship, our energy relationship, our economic relationship look like? How does it change uh, under 46 under this new president, uh, Joe Biden? We've seen early, obviously, rescinding that the presidential permit for, for Keystone XL. That's one thing he's talked a lot about the energy future, and he seems certainly motivated, you know, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, etc. I talked to uh, former federal infrastructure minister, former natural resource minister, Amarjeet Sohi yesterday, who who pointed out, he said, you know, there are biggest customer he said basically they're our only customer when it comes to oil and gas with 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 challenges right now facing line three and line five these these very important pipelines he wondered about the wisdom of going around picking fights suggesting or demanding more respect from the oval office here uh, toward the province of alberta how does the relationship evolve what what is an astute plan like you talk about the needs of the customer have changed so how does canada evolve how does canada in quick fashion transform what it's offering to its biggest customer well i mean one part of it can start with making sure the oil that canada is selling is as uh, defensible as possible to the charge that it's it's dirty oil i mean that's that's the first thing that can be done so as much as possible cleaning up the oil sands as much as possible um you know the companies are talk, starting to talk to be fair and the producers in the oil sands are starting to talk about net zero emissions and so on 
that needs to be done at, uh, you know, laser speed and as quickly as possible because until Canada can actually genuinely point to a net zero emissions um, industry in the oil sands, it will still face opposition from very powerful environmentalists south of the border. Environmentalists who have successfully now stymied uh, KXL and could stymie other pipelines. So that's the first thing. Second thing is there are opportunities for Canada in an energy transition. Canada is, is an advanced economy with great universities. Uh, it's a wealthy economy. It can plow a lot of money, uh, seed capital into turning Alberta into a new you know, clean energy Silicon Valley if it wants to. These are the kind of strategic choices that a country makes about, about how the role it wants to play in the energy transition. Does it want to play a blocking role? Does it want to um, stop things from happening or slow the progress? Or does it want, does it see that this is happening and decide that it wants to be part of it? And I think the Biden administration will be uniquely, uh, I suspect, um, keen to find partners in North America to advance uh, its goal of decarbonizing its own power generation system by 2035 by meeting net zero across the economy by 2050. Those, if you are a natural exporter to the US, that is an opportunity for your industry. That is an opportunity to be part of uh, a fairly huge transition period in the US, which, let's remember, involves spending, Biden proposes, $2 trillion. That's a lot of money that will have to pay for a lot of infrastructure. And Canada can be part of supplying that. There's a lot of steel. For a while, there's a lot of oil that that would need just to build that stuff. There are ways that Canada can still play a very active, very progressive role in helping the U.S. in this uh, energy transition. Uh, Judy's watching this morning. She says the shift to green electricity in Germany makes a significant contribution to sustainable freight transport in Europe. Why not Alberta? Uh, politicians are getting rich from from oil and gas. Neil says Alberta could absolutely be the leader in this energy transition, but we need a huge cultural change. We need to let go to not be afraid of change and realize that we might not be as rich as we were. Are they onto something? Uh, yeah, I mean, Canada has has different challenges than Germany. Germany is much more densely populated, it's a much smaller country, even though it's a pretty big country, but it's much smaller than Canada. So there are specific challenges that, that Canada will face. Culturally, yeah, I think, look, I think um, it's people define themselves in uh, parts of the US Rust Belt as still being from coal communities, even though uh, there isn't much coal produced there now. And so there is clearly a, a link that people have to industries that have long supported their communities. And I don't think Alberta should tear up or, or somehow forget those links it has with the oil industry or agriculture or anything else. The task is to persuade people that uh, this transition can be handled in a way that doesn't humiliate communities, doesn't hollow them out, doesn't leave them empty of opportunity, doesn't uh, leave them as ghost towns, doesn't turn them into the kind of towns you see in the Rockies where there's no longer any mining. You know, that's, that's the important thing to do here. There is an opportunity, whether you're in Wainwright, where my family is, or whether you're in uh, I don't know, in, this, in the south of the country where there's all those you know, wind farms cropping up. There is an opportunity to be part of this energy transition alongside the existing industries that are there. And yes, it does involve some kind of cultural acceptance. It involves realizing that it's happening. It involves not trying to fight it, not trying to dismiss the, the as bad news, something that's happening elsewhere. You know, it doesn't matter if you say that you don't believe in climate change or you don't believe in climate policy, you don't believe in the energy transition. It doesn't matter. It's happening. So if you want your kids to be part of that, if you want the future of the, the province to be secure, 
then it follows that you kind of get on board with with uh, things that are happening in, in big markets like the U.S. Yeah. So, Derek, you see, I mean, you know, the day of the inauguration, January 20th, um, and, and I'm sure that you were noticing because this is your wheelhouse. You study energy, you study markets. Obviously, Keystone is a huge story. Um, but but most Americans were not paying attention to what was coming out of the Alberta legislature. But Alberta's premier, Jason Kenney, fuming at the American president, you know, demanding respect and, and suggesting that, you know, I mean, he, he went back to that argument about ethical oil and he talked about reliance on foreign dictatorships. And, and as if Joe Biden's not aware of any of this. Right. He, he talked about I mean, at the, at the same time as he's pulling away Alberta's made in Alberta climate policy and fighting the federal carbon tax, he's trying to argue that Alberta's oil is the cleanest and the safest and, 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 and should be the go-to for the United States. It's somewhat of a self-defeating argument, but what do you make of this whole thing? I mean, the, the, the arguments have not changed. The premise has not changed from the Alberta government in, in 20 years. It's obviously not resonating with the white house nor anywhere else, quite frankly. Um, now we're plugging hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into campaigns to, to try to unearth conspiracies from foreign funded radical groups against Alberta. I mean, it's just becoming a clown show. Uh, it's earned its own editorial piece from the editorial board in the Globe and Mail this morning. I'll get into this after we talk to you. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I I have to maintain my uh, kind of diplomatic distance here. Uh, you know, I spoke to Premier Kenny as well on Friday and you know, he, he also repeated some of the stuff when I was speaking to him about how he wants to, you know, the Trudeau government to slap sanctions on the U.S. And, um, you know, he believes that Biden is in violation of NAFTA. All this, these things that you're referring to that you've heard. Um, I think that the debate needs to uh, be toned down a bit. I can understand why uh, Premier Kenny is, is uh, marched into the defense of a project that he spent a billion and a bit dollars of taxpayer money on. I can understand that. Um, I think he has to do that. But once all the the, the storm and, and fury has, has died down, I think then it's probably best to start focusing on things as they are, not as you want them to be. Uh, and things as they are, are that Keystone XL is not happening now. Um, Canada does have an oil industry that it, you know, and its main customer, its only customer pretty much is the US. It needs to respect what's happened in the U.S. There is big change happening in the U.S. in its only customer. And Canada would do well and Alberta would do well to adjust to the changes that are happening there. I do think, sadly, you know, there is an element to which the pipeline debates, the pipeline wars, the, the debates over the oil sands, the debates over climate, these have, in Canada, have entered, you know, cultural war territory. And I don't think that's been very helpful for what ultimately is... A matter of facts and science and the fact and science the facts are that things are changing the market has decided that policy is changing electors have decided that in the us and the science is pretty clear that things need to change in a hurry as well and so i can understand why the debates are so heated um i i regret to an extent as a half canadian if you like as a half a person, if you like, I regret that the debate is so heated. I think, I don't think it serves many people very well that it's so heated. Um, but ultimately, the pipeline's dead. I mean, and Alberta has to has to move on. That's just the reality of it.
Derek, before you thank you for your time, a great question from our technical producer, Sam, who's just curious. You're, you're chiming in from England uh, right now, and obviously one of the biggest petroleum companies in the world is uh, BP is, is out of England. But how, how would you describe the perception of the industry as a whole uh, in, in England versus in North America or let alone Canada? Well, I think in, in the UK, the I think the industry is is under a huge amount of social pressure uh, to be part of this change and to stop obstructing it. It's got a reputation for, I mean, BP, remember, is, was the perpetrator of the biggest ecological disaster in, in American history at the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, BP is now espousing a key role in the energy transition, wants to stop producing as much oil, um, wants to cut its oil production by 40% over the next decade, uh, wants to take leadership in the oil industry as a as a as the company greens itself. So it's trying to change things, not very successfully, some would say right now, and investors haven't necessarily endorsed what it's doing in the way that BP would like. But the perception among the public of the industry in Europe is that it has caused harm and needs to change. The perception I've always had of the industry in places like Alberta or Texas or Saudi Arabia or um, Russia, um, all places that I've reported from or lived in, um, the perception in these places is is very different. It's that the industry is integral to the economy. Um, it is you know, very closely associated with the national interest and so on. And, and so it can be very hard it's much easier for an English person to admit that BP has got it wrong with uh, its climate strategy. For example, I'm citing BP as an example because it's now involved in this uh, matter very closely. It's much easier for the public here to feel like it can go after these companies and force them into change than it is, I think, in a place like Alberta where so many people, everybody knows somebody employed in the oil industry in Alberta. Everybody knows communities that depend on the oil industry in Alberta. The idea that we suddenly demand that these these companies stop producing as much oil uh, strikes us as, as somehow that it might damage our own interests. And often case that's true. So I think there's a reason why the perceptions are, are, are different. It's just that there is also some urgency about uh, the need for, for companies to change now. The market is demanding it. Investors are demanding it. Banks and what who they all lend to, they're demanding it increasingly. Insurance companies are demanding it. And the scientists are demanding it because they're saying, unless we start to change, unless we stop producing as, many fossil, as much uh, fossil fuel, unless we start to mitigate our, what we're pumping into the air or control how much CO2 we're, we're emitting, um, we face some serious, serious problems sooner than later. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, perception, it's a bit easier for people in the UK to get, who are much more distant from the industry, to be much more critical of the oil industry. It'll take real courage, I think, in a place like Alberta to admit that um, over time, there needs to be some kind of transition to other energies, which Alberta, by the way, has huge advantages in as well and can be you know, one of the, the world leaders in as well. Just like Texas is now an energy superpower in clean energy, Alberta can be that way too. Texas has got both now. It's increasingly, you know, all the, go into West Texas and there are, there's the Permian Basin with all its oil and there's a ton of, of uh, wind farms as well and increasingly solar. So... That, that opportunity exists for Alberta as well. It's just it's a matter of politicians making choices with the long term in mind as well as the short term. Yeah. Courage. You're right. It takes courage and 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 uh, and I think vision 
And uh, but you leave us with an inspiring message. You leave us with optimism, uh, which is wonderful. Derek Brower, the U.S. energy editor of the Financial Times. Uh, you can read his work there, obviously. Um, joining us from England today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. What a great perspective check that was. I love how that wrapped up, that conversation wrapping up with a reminder. Uh, you know, we oftentimes, to, to our friends that are tuned in from Calgary, Alberta, uh, that, that are listening to this, you know, Edmontonians, and there's always been a healthy rivalry between the two cities, and Edmontonians have always poked fun at Calgary for changing its slogan, for changing the signs at the entry points to the city every two or three years. Uh, but w- one of them that I thought was, be- you know, there's been like the heart of the new West and this, that and the other uh, Calgary, of course, has always had the bragging. If I was Calgary, I would just leave host city 1988 Winter Olympic Games up forever. I would leave that up in perpetuity, although Edmonton might put back the city of champions if they started. And then we'd see we'd get that back. But the one that I thought was was astute that I thought was forward looking was when it said, welcome to Calgary, feel the energy. And it was just that idea of what does the word energy mean? And if you live, I mean, if you're, you know, amazing, by the way, to take a look at our analytics the other week for the first time I saw them. I think our our team was was keeping some of the numbers from me so I wouldn't have panic attacks or obsessively refresh and check them every single day. I didn't even know the extent uh, to which we could understand where people are tuning in from. It's amazing. 62 countries. We had people, we had audience members from 62 countries through our first 40 days, uh, which was incredible, including United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Brunei. It was great. And I'm wondering if potentially some of these folks were joining us because of conversations on energy. But we've been conditioned to to understand that to mean oil and gas to a certain degree, or maybe based on where you are or what you've done for work. But energy is so much more. I know I feel like I'm stating the obvious here. My internal dialogue, I'm going, should I, should I stop? stating the obvious that energy isn't just oil and gas but maybe we need to remind ourselves and our fellow canadians about that reality i thought that was great from Derek brower that is necessarily obvious and it's mostly just because like you know in in this province we've conflated energy with oil and gas for years and years and years you know when the premier names an energy minister that means oil and gas right it's coded language where that person's gonna be in charge of oil and gas, and that's it. So much so that we have an associate minister for natural gas. Yeah, like it's its own. We're like there's energy, and then there's natural gas, and and, and maybe some renewables if if so, you find some crumbs under so, the table. So who's the minister for wind and solar? I mean, can you imagine how they would get chirped? I don't think if you if you were Alberta's we minister one. of wind and solar, I don't think you could be on Twitter. <laughs> I don't think you could deal with it. Uh, the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge is ready for you through 2021. And that's saying something because 2021 is a huge year when it comes to the Jeep lineup. Jeep has got that gladiator out, which I can't stop staring at online. They've got that compass capable, fuel efficient. And then, of course, they've got the Grand Cherokee that I'm driving. Absolutely love it. Bang for buck, in my opinion, the best SUV on the market. But but then again, I haven't seen the Grand Wagoneer. That's coming out this year. And that's going to go head-to-head against all the big luxury trucks. It's not lost on me that we're talking about this right before we talked about that, right after we talked about that. Um, if you love to put the pedal to the metal and have ample power to pull your boat, your trailer, this Grand Wagoneer, you're going to want to look into it. Scott and his team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge are ready for you. As is Chris and his team, Lauren as well at Local Waste. For more than a quarter century, they've been finding solutions for businesses and individuals from the small operations all the way up to the massive ones. We're talking malls and supermarkets. 
If you'd rather do business with somebody that you can call on the phone and refer to them by their first name, give Local Waste a call at 780-242-9746 or check them out online at localwaste.ca. Before we get to our next guest, I'm I'm touching on this, this opinion piece in the Globe and Mail today. uh, Jason Kenney's War of Words verges on farce. It's written by the editorial board, which basically means that that staff, you know, each paper has its editorial board and they come together. Typically, op eds like opinion editorial pieces by editorial boards are interesting reads because these are folks that have come together and worked on a collective project. It's a it's a voice from the publication to the public. So this isn't just one person. This 133 page report commissioned by the Alberta government, quote, There is a transnational global movement to facilitate a fundamental paradigm shift. The first target, the Alberta oil sands, the end goal, the replacement of capitalism with technocratic socialism that favors small organic farms and a China like digital totalitarian state to control the populace. Now, you just talked to Derek Brower from the Financial Times, and then you're reading this report. Who would you rather have your elected officials paying attention to? This is a story that our next guest, Jeff Dambicki, has been following the the Alberta inquiry. This one that we've been talking about, three and a half million bucks uh, headed by Steve Allen, paid twenty eight thousand dollars recently for a report smearing hundreds of climate journalists. Uh, That includes our next guest. Uh, who writes for a number of uh, publications, including Vice, the Taiyi. He's the author of the book, Are We Screwed? How a New Generation is Fighting to Survive Climate Change. Uh, Jeff, thanks for making time for us. I think you're from New York. Are you calling in from uh, New York this morning. Is that right? Well, I'm actually from Alberta originally, and I moved to my New York with my partner in 2019 to cover the lead up to the federal U.S. election and definitely got more than I bargained for in terms of craziness over this last year and a half. Wow. So you're so you're I mean, when you're writing about Alberta inquiries, the energy market, oil and gas, it's something that you're intensely aware of. I don't have to lay the groundwork for you to talk about energy culture uh, or any of the things that we've just been talking to Derek Brower about. So so how did you approach? this story i mean has this been on your radar for for as long as it's been on everybody else's radar that's watching or tuning in from western canada right now i mean definitely and being in the states but also growing up in alberta i have this kind of international perspective on what's happening in the province and so i've seen Um, how this massive global energy shift away from fossil fuels is posing unprecedented threats to the Alberta economy. And then I've also watched as the leadership Alberta has sort of said, you know what, all of these banks that says um, that there isn't much of a future for the oil sands, all of these international financial institutions, they're just part of a massive conspiracy and we can ignore them. And so I think this report that you just mentioned um, that was talked about in the globe and which I reported on is, is a really interesting development in that story. 
So this is, I mean, you, you have to wonder, I mean, the end game, I think here, uh, you know, on the surface would appear to be uh, the Alberta government able to prove that there's been this well-coordinated, well-financed attack on, on Alberta's oil sands and, and other energy sources in Alberta. But, but it's, it's winding up, I think, uh, coming across as and, and acting out as more of a self-inflicted wound. And that's just within Alberta's provincial borders. Is this something that's on? I, I find it hard to believe that the average New Yorker is aware of what's going on right now. But in the context of how you're evaluating it, like you said, with an international lens, where is this going? What impact is it having? Well, so when I saw that this report, this 133-page report about a transnational progressive conspiracy had been published by the Alberta government. I, I was just interested in that as, as an Albertan and a Canadian and someone who writes about energy issues. And then I started going through the report and, and I was just flabbergasted by it and particularly the section on climate change media. So the, the report spends um, a large amount of time arguing that basically every major mainstream media organization that reports on climate change is actually part of a conspiracy to abolish capitalism, destroy Western living standards, and and humiliate Alberta. And I, I was kind of like, that's that does not apply in the least to what I'm doing as a climate change journalist. And then I saw that the Alberta government had spent $28,000 commissioning this report as part of the inquiry. And I tried to find a bit of information about the woman who wrote this report, Tammy Nemeth. And all I could find was that she's currently a homeschool teacher based in England. And so I was just thinking, wow, this is, this is absolutely nuts. And that's, that's why I wanted to write my piece about it. So what the deeper that you dove into it, what have you determined or, or what what's the takeaway as you look? I mean, the, the the sort of I don't know if I want to call it the attack, but the when you say the inquiry into journalists, it, it kind of takes me back to some some pretty disturbing times in human history. I mean, it is it is disturbing. And, and this I, I should point out this report is one hundred and thirty three pages and it goes all over the place. Um it says that there's a conspiracy led by people like Michael Bloomberg and George Soros, the World Economic Forum is involved. But it was, it was the sections on media that really jumped out to me, not just because I'm a journalist and I obviously have an interest in this, but it's because when, when you start attacking major mainstream media organizations as part of a conspiracy to end Alberta, you're kind of destroying the foundation of factual reality that we all depend on in a democracy. And obviously all of us paying attention to what's been happening in the US Capitol the last few weeks can see what a dangerous precedent this sets. And, and so I, I think the fact that the Alberta government paid $28,000 for this report the report is being hosted and promoted on an official Alberta inquiry website. The report is being sent out um, to dozens of participants and it's naming all of these international media organizations. I think that's, that goes beyond force <laughs> that goes beyond farce to something a little bit more troubling. 
Well, and you, ha- and, and you have to wonder about, I mean, I know that I'm stating the obvious here, Jeff, but, but you know, the residual impact that this might have on it. We sort of scoff at, at how silly it sounds or how ridiculous it sounds. But the matter of the fact is that this is commissioned by the Alberta government and there are there are people, uh, human beings making pretty big decisions about where they'll allocate investments uh, or where they'll take their business or they will continue to employ people or think about employing people uh, to whom this may be somewhat of a dissuasion. You know, the question is, what sort of a detrimental impact could this have on the international stage? Uh, have you done any digging into that or what's your gut telling you? Well, we already know that there are all of these international institutions and politicians and activists who have an interest in what happens in Alberta because it's home to the third largest oil reserves. And um, the Alberta government um, has seen that in terms of a conspiracy rather than as um, major influential actors around the world being very concerned about climate change. And, and we know that because Alberta's oil um, costs more than the average and pollutes more than the average, that it's at a particular disadvantage in a global economy that's trying to address climate change seriously. And so if, if, the, if the government of Jason Kenney is going around saying even climate change journalists are part of this conspiracy and they're bought off and you can't trust them, what does that say to institutions like BlackRock? Or what does that say to policymakers in the European Union? Or what does that say to President Joe Biden about whether um, people outside Alberta should continue doing business with the province? It, it seems like Alberta is trying to portray itself as the most out of touch reality jurisdiction that could possibly exist right now on climate change. How do you approach? Let me let me ask you just a personal question. Well, it's it's personal slash professional, but but yourself as a climate change journalist um, and, and someone who's lived in Alberta and called Alberta home. I'm not sure if that's relevant or not. Uh, how do you approach your job, your career, your calling, so to speak, as a, as a storyteller and an investigative journalist? What what's your mandate? Well, my mandate is that climate change is one of the biggest and most consequential stories in the world right now. And um, there, there are some people like um, those in the UCP government would say that makes me biased to say that. But I would reply to that, that it's, it's the role of, of journalists to bring important truths to the public's attention, even if those truths um, are uncomfortable. And it's just a scientific fact that the climate is heating up rapidly and that to a large degree, burning of fossil fuels contributes to that. I mean, the oil and gas industry's own scientists determined that decades ago. And so I operate on the assumption that um, unless we take major action to deal with climate change, that there are going to be massive impacts um, to Canada's natural environment, to its economy, to the people who live there. And those impacts are far beyond anything that we're seeing with COVID-19 right now. So operating on that, I think it's my job and the job of climate journalists all over the place 
to bring facts about the evolving science to people's attention, to bring facts about the evolving economics to people's attention, and to give people the information that they need to make informed decisions, particularly those in power. But I, I don't think the Alberta government is very interested in those facts. Uh, Jeff, in closing, you mentioned that you, you moved stateside uh, in part to cover the, the lead up to the uh, American election. Uh, obviously, in a city like New York, one of the great cities in the world, uh, there's probably a lot to process when it comes to the politics of it. I, I even think if this is a bit of a random connection, I even just think of Rudy Giuliani. Uh, we were talking just the other day, like whatever happened to Rudy Giuliani? You think back to 9-11 wearing the FDNY jacket and, and a, a man of, in my opinion, at that time perceived to be a man of great repute, a very capable, uh, steadfast leadership through the greatest challenge that that they've ever faced, I think, on American soil, uh, maybe with the exception of Pearl Harbor, maybe. Uh, you look now at the, I mean, I don't need to be reductive and spend all our time talking about the, you know, the, the hair dye trickling down the face as he stands outside of Four Seasons landscaping, alleging, I mean, it's just unbelievable what's happened to New York's former mayor. Uh, but what's the tone in, the, in, in, in New York right now? What's the tone in, on, on the eastern seaboard of the United States? And, uh, you know, we've had what now, I guess about a, it'll be a week tomorrow uh, since uh, President Biden's inauguration. As, as someone who covered uh, the lead up to the transition of power, what are you noticing either in, in broad strokes or specifically? I would say that there's been a huge sigh of relief. And, and that was evident on um, the day that the election results were, were finally certified in Biden's favor. And literally the cheering in New York was so loud that you could hear it on the tops of skyscrapers. It was just like this wall of sound engulfing the entire island of Manhattan. Um, but I, I think as, as it relates back to what we've been discussing um, Joe Biden, for the first time ever in U.S. political history, has made aggressively responding to climate change one of the top goals of his presidential platform. And, and he's gone far beyond anything that Obama was promising back in 2008. So I, I know um, some people in Alberta are really upset about the Keystone XL pipeline um, being rejected on day one. But I, I think... The smart move really um, from Alberta and from Canada's perspective would be to pay close attention to the large environmental changes that Biden wants to bring to the U.S. economy, because that's going to create a ton of opportunities for people who are smart enough and savvy enough in Canada to take advantage of them. Jeff Dembicki, an investigative climate reporter. You can read his most recent uh, filing at vice.com. Alberta Inquiry paid 28 grand for a report smearing hundreds of climate journalists. Thanks for checking in from New York today. We appreciate it, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, you bet. All right, Real Talkers. Uh, I, I, I noted one of you, and uh, this is... I'm not going to be able to find the name. I wish I could because I want to credit her. Uh, but but one of our uh, viewers this morning said, hang on a second, said, I, I, I Googled... Uh, the author of that uh, the author of that report, I appreciate this from two beaver who says extraordinary guest today, by the way, voices of reason and knowledge um, to beaver, because that is such a unique handle to beaver. I want to let you know, we also received the video you sent us. 
You know what I mean? And uh, I can confirm that that video will be included in next Monday's positive reflections. Sam Brooks, did you don't don't give it away? Don't give it away. I'm not giving it away. But, but did I have you a see big grin on my? You face. know what I'm talking oh, yeah. about. You know the video I'm talking about. You can send us emails anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com and uh, make sure you note them either trash talk or positive reflections on Monday. We get your week started on the right foot. Thanks to our friends at Kubi energy uh, with some positive reflections. And then on Friday, we get you all hot and bothered. We get you all riled up with trash talk. I got a great email. Um, and, and don't worry, I've not lost track of that other viewer and what I wanted to say. I noted your message about the author of that report. We got a great email from Devin DeHoy yesterday what a great name by the way Devin DeHoy it sounds it sounds like Donnie Darko it sounds like a kind of a Devin DeHoy that sounds like a it could be like a sort of a I don't know if it's like a punk band I'm picturing like a Billy Idol kind of like Devin DeHoy yeah Devin DeHoy uh said Jespo your admission on Monday morning about last Friday's trash talk made me laugh to the point of tears I distinctly remember waiting with excited anticipation all morning only to be left with a slight shoulder shrug and mild confusion i literally wondered on and off all weekend what that was all about your admission to what was really happening was a hilarious vindication of my confusion thank you as always that from devon if you missed me explaining yesterday i confessed sam enabled me you empowered me to to make a confession to the real talkers that literally on friday i picked up the wrong stack of emails and i tried to put a trash talk spin on on emails that were just not inflammatory whatsoever they they were good they were good emails but they weren't one-liners throwing hand grenades they just weren't and so it just means we've got we've got double to pick from i mean unless we just like drop in like an impromptu trash talk i mean i'm ready if you are but uh, you know is that right well, we can do it anytime you want. Yeah. Well, why don't we do? Why don't we do like ninety seconds right now of trash talk earmuffs, kids? You really? Yeah. Really. All right. This is why you got to tune into Real Talk. Two hours a day. You never know when you're going to get a bonus edition of Trash Talk, like this one from Rick, who says, "Jespo, I'm astounded at the hypocrisy from Jason Kenny regarding the two thousand union jobs. He says were lost from Keystone XL. How his heart goes out to these workers. Where's the same sadness?" For the thousands of public sector workers that they've directly cut funding for, it's very clear where his allegiances lie. And it is not for the everyday Albertan. How about this one from Jay? Oh, no, this is from Pierrette. Pierrette was watching the interview with Jay Hill of the Maverick Party. He says, I agree with Jay about feds promoting our natural resources because I feel like we're doing a good job environmentally. We can always improve, but I totally disagree with talk of separating. Stop that! That from Pierrette. How about this from Christina? Christina says, Pat Rain out of Lesser Slave Lake blaming his assistant for claiming all those meals, those expenses. How dare he, says Christina. As an assistant myself in the private sector, I always relied on the person I support to provide receipts and tell me if per diems should be claimed. I confirm everything I have questions about. I know the policies inside out and I ensure that they are followed. Throwing the lowest paid person under the bus is disgusting. That from Christina. And how about this one from Darren at Arcadia Brewing Co. He says, hey, small business owner here. How you doing? Oh, not me. Yeah, pretty good. Thanks. Just hanging on as a matter of fact, getting as many subsidies as I can. I wish these jabronis cared as much about opening businesses as they do about their pipe dream i mean pipeline he says come fill your growlers today that from darren at arcadia brewing co another impromptu edition 
of Trash Talk right here on Real Talk. Now I got to calm right down and get, you know, copacetic again so we can talk about vaccinations at long-term we, care centers. That's serious business. <laughs> you want, give me a second to sip my coffee. Oh, that's fine. We still we, we also still need to talk about the uh, the author of that report. I got to get my focus back here. Um Hey, I nobody expected an impromptu trash talk. You I take didn't all either, the time you need. I didn't either myself, and now I'm at like 180 beats per minute, and whew, it's good. I got to get my heart going. I'm meeting with. Uh, I'm going to be like a doing like a Zoom thing. I'm trying this new thing with a personal trainer. I'm going to be introducing you to him and telling you all about him. Um, but uh, that's coming up, and I'm I fear because we haven't been able to play hockey. That's been pulled away, you know, and uh, you know I support measures and steps people are taking, but we just haven't been able to get the exercise we normally get and yes i'm obviously employing a whole bunch of excuses and yes i obviously know there are other ways i could get my heart going but i'm a little nervous about this training session on thursday because it's been a while since i've broken a sweat at yeah, least based fair. on exercise like yeah yeah i guess i could see that trepidation I, there. i've broken a sweat a few times doing trash talk presented <laughs> by local ways but but it's been a while since exercise but so so this listener and i, and I apologize i'm scrolling through and i can't it, it, it the, the message is buried but but listener basically said hey to be fair uh tammy nemeth who's who's been identified as the author of this report just paid twenty eight thousand dollars to the you know by the alberta government um to identify you know some of the maybe in, in my words, more conspiratorial angles, um, remote and slim possibilities that there's an international uh, conspiracy specifically aimed at the province of Alberta and ultimately try to bury capitalism. Um, if you take a look at the big market forces that are impacting energy transitions, it's they're, they're benefiting from capitalism, just to point it out. Now, if this is the same Tammy Nemeth, because a viewer wrote in and quite rightfully said, seems like maybe she's being underrepresented here a little bit maybe maybe it was a diplomatic message maybe maybe a little bit disrespected maybe, maybe she's and again this is not a shot at homeschooling parents if we've learned anything through the course of the pandemic it's that a lot of homeschooling parents are absolute saints and we had no idea uh so this is a shout out as a matter of fact two thumbs up to homeschooling parents but you know is tammy nemeth just a homeschooling parent and be careful how you phrase that if it's the same Tammy Nemeth, because uh, I'll recognize that that uh, this Tammy Nemeth, the author of this report, reportedly lives in England. Jeff Dambicki uh, off air had told us that he reached out to her. There was no comment. He reflects that in his report. Uh, but she's in England. But there is a Tammy Nemeth, uh, a contributing author. Uh, you can find this through the library at the University of Alberta. Uh, Pat Carney and the dismantling of the National Energy Program. Um, so Tammy is a historian strikes me. I don't know how many Tammy Nemeth there are that are historians in energy. So I'm assuming it's her uh, a PhD student. At least this was, you know, published in 2008. So I'm assuming that this bio is dated uh, PhD at the University of British Columbia uh, research in Canadian contemporary history. B.A. honors from the University of Regina uh, on the development of Reformation theology. Uh, an M.A. in history out of the University of Alberta. Uh, represented the Department of History and Classics for the U of A at the Greyhound Lecture Series at the University of Calgary in the spring of 1997. So that, that's what I was able to dig up. So in the interest of fairness, uh, I think it's important. And I appreciate that listener making that point. So, you know, where do we start here? There's a lot going on on, on, on the chat line. And if I can just. Uh, oh, this is an interesting point from Tracy. I'm trying to decide right now. I have a, I have a like a solo cup 
of kerosene and I'm standing over a fire that's just it's just smoldering, though. And I know that if I threw this on, it would go. Shall I throw it? You always throw it. I don't even know why you pause sometimes. You're just, always going to throw it. I'm just building suspense yeah. before I. <laughs> do I have time to tell a quick story before I get to this? I think I do. Uh, we met some amazing people up at Berg Lake. Have you ever hiked into Berg Lake? It's uh, not. Yeah, so it's oh my gosh. Whereabouts are we talking? Uh, about? So it's right by Mount. It's it's sort of like at the base, not technically, but it's kind of at the base of Mount Robson. Oh, okay. So you know you go west of Jasper Highway 16. If you're no matter where in Canada you're listening to us from, or no matter if you're uh, you know checking out this podcast internationally, I would recommend uh, you know the the, the western. Uh, I mean. You know, Jasper, you start there and then you just get out to Mount Robson. It's phenomenal hiking. Absolutely amazing. Um, if you want to punish yourself like you've never been punished before, do what we did and and hike the Moose River route, which will just beat you into submission mercilessly uh, for a number of days. But Berg Lake is the entrance into the Moose River route, and you can just do it as as kind of an overnight trip and then turn back. And I highly recommend it. The lake itself, as the name would suggest, uh, you know, there's got these big chunks of ice actually floating in the water and you hike in the 20K or whatever it is and you, you pull off your boots and you put your feet in the water and it's just like, oh, just incredible. So we meet these amazing folks. Uh, this was, you know, several summers ago up there and, and everybody's sitting around the campfire. And in the morning, we're about to set off onto the Moose River route. And in the morning, they're about to take off and head back down to civilization. And so they're, they're, they're these, uh, you know, experienced hikers, uh, so much so that they chopper in. They say their knees and their backs can't, you know, support them like they used to. So they chopper in and then they do day hikes. They do scrambles with day packs. So it's brilliant, right? You don't have to hike in the like 60 pound pack, but it also means that you can bring some of the, the luxuries, you know, like as we may bring tartar sauce. Um, well, they happen to bring uh, moonshine and it, it it's it's like. It is not a joke whatsoever. And I've I have been around some some beverages that can pack a punch, but I had never experienced something like this. And this is such a party foul. I can't even believe that I'm confessing this on real talk, but it's real talk. So here I am. So I'm sitting here and the, the, the guy pours me this this like into my stainless steel hiking uh, mug, this this splash of mood. It was it was a generous splash. And I'm and I'm sipping it, but like my eyes are and I'm just like, I'm not even it was so strong. Like it was just one of these things where it was like it's like turpentine. It was like paint thinner, it, you know, and uh, so I don't know what I was thinking. Do you know where the story's going? So we're sitting around the fire and I see this, you know, that scene in The Gods Must Be Crazy where the guy's like chewing on the chocolate bar, but he doesn't enjoy it. And he pretends like he's talking to his friend. He's like and he's like spitting it all out because he wants to get rid of the chocolate bar. So I'm sitting around the fire and then buddy looks away and I'm like, here's my chance. I got to get rid of this. So what do I do? I throw it into the fire. Well, what do you think happens? It's like, good Lord, woof, like this massive. It's like I threw a cup of gasoline on the fire, like just this. Woof. And of course, he turns around right away, first of all, because he just about, you know, got a free Brazilian from the rear. And uh, and he kind of and he kind of looks at me and then he's putting two and two together. and He's like, did you just and I was like, uh, but like, what was I going to say? It's obvious what I just did. And I was like, I couldn't. I just went straight to self-deprecation. I was like, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't. I, I just I, I need it. And he's like, I would have drank it. My apologies. 
So I'm going to throw the moonshine on the fire right now. This from Tracy, who says, honestly, she says, I'm homeschooling right now, like a lot of people. Uh, Tracy says, and the homeschooling groups are riddled with conspiracy theorists and QAnon supporters. And Tracy says, nothing would shock me. So interesting point. Now, there are families that homeschool for a number of different reasons. I, I am sure that there is a significant portion of the population that homeschools its kids because they don't trust in the secularized uh, socialism pushing vaccine championing, uh, you know, sort of like uh, probably premarital fornicating, uh, you know, type. I mean, there's probably all different angles on what kids are, you know, you know, they're, the next thing you know, you're, you know, your kids are going to have gay friends if you put them in public school. There's probably an element to that population that homeschools for sure. And then there's an element of the population that homeschools just because they want to homeschool and because they're amazing and they want to be around their kids or maybe because there's geographical barriers or maybe because their kids have special needs and they've had their puff funding pulled and they're not getting what they need in public schools or maybe it just doesn't make sense for them or maybe there's a million reasons. Um, and, and I think it's there are trends that we can note in certain populations. You also want to be careful. Um, I'm trying to be careful here. I've got friends that homeschool. Heck, everybody's been homeschooling this past year. Um this is probably a decent time for me to make an announcement before we get to our next guest. I haven't even told you this, but we're going to be starting Real Talk late on one day. And I want to uh, give everybody a heads up and Sam, I'll give you a heads up because you can sleep in a little bit. Ooh, it is. Nice. Yeah. Next Tuesday. And this is for one day and one day only on Tuesday, February 2nd. Real Talk is going to start at nine o'clock instead of eight thirty. Um, and that is because we're doing something a little bit different and th- we're not owned by a multi-billion dollar corporation and we can and, and, and we can ebb and flow in our provision and, and quite frankly, do whatever we want. And Tuesday, February 2nd is going to be my little guy's very first day in a classroom. It's going to be his very first day. We, we, we have we have reached the decision as a family. We approached this decision with trepidation. Obviously, there's a lot to consider. Uh, a lot of kids have been in school the whole time. A lot of parents wouldn't dream of sending their kids to school right now. Uh, but we've decided for what's right for our family that, that this is the right time for him to go to school. So his first day is going to be Tuesday, February 2nd. So we're going to walk him to school. And then I'm going to come in a little late for Real Talk. So we'll start at 9 o'clock next Tuesday, February 2nd. All right? That sounds fantastic. So there you go. Very excited about that. Uh, keep the comments coming. Um, right now, we wanted to remind you that without the support of uh, Clean Air Club, uh, we wouldn't be able to be on this journey like we are today. And it was amazing yesterday to see another couple of you tweeting at me, letting me know that you had signed up. One of you showed me the website. You just signed up at cleanairclub.ca. The other sent me a photo of the furnace filters showing up on the front door right shortly after you had ordered them. That's what they do. They take the guesswork out of when these furnace filters should be replaced, and they make sure you always have what you need so your family can breathe easy. Let your furnace run the way it's designed to run. Right now, we need them in tip-top condition, right? And that comes with keeping it clean as well. So cleanairclub.ca is where you can sign up. They're proudly locally owned and operating and a proud sponsor of Real Talk. Same deal goes with the team at Eden Landscaping. They know that this is the time of year that you're starting to envision what your dream outdoor space might look like. So they can do the small projects like flower boxes all the way up to the big ones. Like maybe you're building your new dream home, but the the home builder's giving you a pretty lousy layout for your backyard. You can check them out at landscapeedmonton.ca or you can link to their website, uh, of course, by checking out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's landscapeedmonton.ca. Eden Landscaping, a proud sponsor of Real Talk. 
Well, how much have you been paying attention to what's been going on when it comes to vaccinations and most specifically vaccinations of some of our more vulnerable populations? We're talking about seniors living in long term care or other supportive facilities. And we're going to learn a little bit more about the different models here, including those that are uh, private service providers. There's a line that's been drawn when it comes to vaccine eligibility. And I think we're all going to learn something here as we welcome to the show uh, from the Canterbury Foundation, Wendy King, and from Exquisicare, Don Harsh. My friends, welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. Uh, Don, why don't we start with you? Uh, give us a sense of, of what Exquisicare is all about. And, and, and I realize that I'm asking a massive question right now. Uh, but how have you managed some of the very real and serious challenges around this pandemic for the past, let's say, 10 months? Thanks, Ryan. So what is exquisite care is, is an al- alternative to institutional care. Um, we are a licensed supportive living provider, and we provide all levels of care for seniors from assisted living up to long-term care and even palliative. So it's true aging in place. The average age of our seniors is 93. Uh, in fact, one of our residents, she's 102, and she celebrated her birthday yesterday through a cold COVID window because of the COVID restrictions that we are mandated to adhere to. She couldn't have a birthday party. So as a licensed supportive living provider, we are required to follow the medical officer of health orders, which legislate that because we are a risky congregate care facility, um, we need to do certain things to protect our seniors. So we've done those things. I mean, the last 10, 11 months have been brutal for all supportive living providers. And it takes a while to explain it, but there is government-funded supportive living, whether that's long-term care or designated supportive living. And then there is unfunded or licensed supportive living. We provide great care. We're very proud of the the care that we provide. Um, and, And the crux of the conversation here today, Ryan, is that unfunded, so licensed, we still have those same standards. So licensed supportive living providers providing for the same type of very elderly, very frail seniors, were not prioritized in this vaccine rollout. So neither the residents nor the staff. So we have adhered to the medical officer of health guidelines. We have protected our seniors at Exquisite Care. We have had zero cases of COVID. And we've done that through really, really, really hard work, through diligence to those orders. And and you know what, our seniors have suffered because they have not had the access to their families that they so desperately need at this point Mm -hmm. in their lives. Wendy, so we have a sense of 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 what the you know the sort of the the uh, I don't I don't want to make any assumptions here with regards to the conversation is what Don has described as exquisite care is it is it a relatively uh, similar situation at Canterbury? Can you bring us up to speed? Yeah, certainly, uh, certainly. Don uh, and uh, Don's uh, organization, Exquisite Care and Canterbury Foundation, is similar in the sense that we are licensed supportive living. We have a uh, congregate living uh, environment um, with uh, three levels of care in West Edmonton, starting from independent living, we have supportive living, and we also have memory care. Um, We are a not-for-profit organization. We do receive some funding in the sense that we do have a congregate Uh, a congregate home care contract with Alberta Health Services. So we do provide care services under that contract, but we also provide uh, private care as well. 
and many of our residents, our average age is between 89 to 92. We have several centenarians uh, on our, in our complex. And uh, we have about 270 residents altogether. We have about 200 staff. And uh, our uh, clinical component is comprised of RNs, LPNs, healthcare aides. We do have a chaplain on site. We do have a social worker on site. And we do um, co uh, contract with physicians and other healthcare professionals to provide care to our residents. Wendy, did I so, do I understand you correctly? Mm -hmm. Did you say that there's a that there's a public element or a publicly funded element to your service provision, plus a, a licensed, in other words, private element? You have both. We do. We have so. Both. So, so has that been different policy? I don't mean to step on your toes. My apologies. Does does mm -hmm. that mean different policies when it comes to vaccinations for residents based on what side of the hallway they're on? Uh, yes, it can. Uh, so, for example, our staff who provide, who are the frontline staff who provide the uh, home care services, which comprises maybe fifty four percent of our total staff of two hundred. Uh, they, um, I'm sorry, 32% of our total staff of 200, uh, they have been called to receive vaccinations so far. They haven't all been able to get vaccinated because of the supply. Our residents who are receiving home care, um, while we did hear that they were being considered, uh, which is not all of them, uh, but so far they haven't been called. And so what, what we have here is a, you know, an, uh, an environment where everyone lives in the same environment, they interact, you know, uh, this staff member gets her vaccine while this staff member who provides another service uh, doesn't. And so this is, you know, difficult uh, in an organization like ours where we cannot separate everybody uh, they all work and interact uh, in the same building and they are neighbors and, and they work together. So is this, uh, Don, how would you, how would you characterize the, Like, first of all, can you give us a sense of what your advocacy has looked like? I mean, it, it includes uh, this interview, obviously, but what steps have you been taking to, to try to bend the ear of, of government or of policymakers? What has your interaction been like with Alberta health services? And, and do you feel like you've been getting anywhere? Uh, our advocacy has been um, very fulsome, I think. I mean, certainly we've written letters to the Minister of Health. We've written letters and had conversations with our local MLA. We've written to the Premier. I've had conversations and received some feedback from Alberta Health, the Congregate Living Branch. And their answer was... Um, their answer was clearly that seniors in government-funded long-term care and DSL. So what that D stands for is designated supportive living. And all that means is government-funded supportive living. Um, we're prioritized in phase 1A of the vaccine rollout, along with the staff who care for those individuals. Um, we have talked to uh, Catherine Douglas, who is the executive director of the Health Advocates Office of Alberta. We have worked through our association, the Alberta Senior Citizens Housing Authority. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because the message that we're getting back is that certainly these individuals are deserving of the vaccine, but they are going to be rolled out the, in terms of the residents. They are going to be um, receiving that vaccine as part of phase 1B, so not until February. And the thing that I find really frustrating and hard to understand is that there has been no, um, no, 
recognition that our frontline healthcare staff absolutely need to be included in phase 1A. As Wendy said, we too employ registered nurses, LPNs, certified healthcare aides, physicians, allied healthcare providers. Um, and we know that it is the staff that often unwillingly or unknowingly um, bring that COVID into these vulnerable populations. So, I mean, I write daily emails um, to government. Um, happy to be on your show today because it just makes no sense to me that our government can't see this. And especially when our government's own website clearly states that seniors in all congregate care facilities are at highest risk and need to be prioritized. So to, to ask a plain question, uh, you know, Wendy, maybe I'll put it to you first, but I'm curious for, to pick both your brains on this. Is is there like just straight up? Is there a bit of a lack of public sympathy because it's a private facility? People perceive. I mean, I grew up uh, a mix of private and public schools, and I know how a lot of people view families that send their kids to private schools. Well, you, you know, you should have any, you should pay for everything. You can pay for everything yourself. They see it differently. Is that what's going on here, Wendy? No. Well, I, I think it's more about choice. I think that uh, seniors in this province want to have a choice of whether, as Dawn mentioned uh, in her opening, whether or not they want to live in a public uh, institution or, or in an institution or whether it's a residential setting. And so residents who live in our or, uh, facilities choose the residential setting. The, the, the problem is, is that because we are not funded uh, by the government for long-term care designated supportive living, it's not really um, acknowledged the, the, I would say, I would say uh, the importance that we bring to the continuing care sector. Uh. So collectively in the province, I think private, uh, private or licensed supportive living provides care and services for over 20,000 seniors. And that's a big uh that's a big gap in terms of who's getting vaccinated, who's being talked about, who's being prioritized. And so uh, this is the problem. It's because across the country, the talk has been about long-term care and, and the problems that are seen in long-term care. But in some provinces, our organizations would be included under, um, the, under that umbrella. Here in Alberta, it's very specific to those who those organizations that are being funded or those facilities that are being so it's funded. it's a it's a categorization issue yes. uh, like I, yes. I want to be clear i'm not attacking private care homes uh you know, quite frankly i hope to wind up in one myself if that's where the universe will take me i'm not cracking on people's option for choice i'm not cracking on the fact that many people have prioritized this as part of their retirement plan that's not what i'm saying whatsoever i can understand yes. government optics were private facilities to be granted all the vaccines first uh that would be an optical issue don so where do you how do you find the balance i mean what what do you propose? Yeah, and, and just to answer that question, Ryan, I don't think this this isn't a private versus public question or debate. That's that's not what this is about okay. at all. I think that it is just a lack of understanding of the continuing care system in Alberta. And that lack of understanding is unfortunately sitting with the people who are making these um, decisions about the vaccine rollout. I think maybe those individuals only understand their own world, uh, which is the government funded world. But there is a whole world of licensed supportive living providers. Um, you know, some of them are private, some of them are not for profit. And this really is about the seniors who are living in risky situations. And so they therefore deserve 
to receive this vaccine because they are at highest risk. And so are the care providers who are altering their lives on a daily basis to make sure that we continue to provide safe care for our seniors. So it's not it's not a private versus public question. It's it's a policy question. Um, and you know, even the federal government and the National Advisory Council on Immunization, which is um, again a federal organization, their guidelines also clearly state and and they made um, they made a strong recommendation. So they they distinguish between a strong recommendation and you know less strong. I forget what the word is, but they clearly state that the priority phase one a of vaccine rollout is to include all seniors and staff in congregate care facilities. So no distinguishing between where the funding comes from. How have you, Don? You you talk about zero cases. Um, at exquisite, I don't even know why I'm prompted to knock on wood here on the table in front of me, but it just it feels like that that would be something I would bet you're monitoring all the time. And as we've seen in Canada, I mean, some of the worst outbreaks have been in private care facilities in other provinces. How have you maintained? And we understand the numbers. I'm not going to start getting into it. I don't have data in front of me, but we know what happens once a location or a facility is compromised. The spread can be quick and it can be deadly uh, when you're talking about, you know, 80, 90, you know, centenarians. I love how you put that wendy um but but you know how how do you achieve that like can you give us a sense you talk about no family visits and i know this has been very difficult on families let alone the residents themselves these people uh but but what measures have you can you give us a, a sense of what it's been like in these facilities how you've maintained zero cases most especially with staff that are coming and going so I believe that, that there's two answers to that question. One is we have diligently followed those orders. Um, we have very dedicated staff who have also very diligently followed those orders. And so we have been very, very, very carefully managing this outbreak right from day one. But the second thing that we do, which is it's inherent in who we are and how we operate is it's a residential model of care. And so my mantra since I became an, a nurse almost 30 years ago um, was is that institutionalizing our parents is not okay. And you know whether it's private or public funded long-term care, I think if you look at the infrastructure around those where you have much, much old, old, old buildings, you have shared rooms, um, it's difficult to control a seasonal influenza, let alone a pandemic in environments and infrastructure. So, you know, we really advocate for a residential model of care. We believe that not only is it um, safer, um, provides a better quality of life for the seniors, but the outcomes are better. So, twofold in that, but um, we still believe that, you know, that our seniors and the staff are providing care in congregate care facilities. They absolutely need to be added to the priority list for vaccination in Alberta, and that needs to happen now. And we recognize that there's a vaccine shortage. Uh, and of course, everybody is waiting. But as soon as we start to receive vaccines again, we need that our seniors and staff to, to be on that list. Yeah, I mean, and heaven forbid an, an outbreak were to occur and th these seniors have been denied vaccines. I mean, you hate to talk about things like, look at me, I was about to perpetuate something that drives me nuts and, and, and start treating it like numbers. These are people's lives we're talking about. I don't mean to, to point out how politically inconvenient it would be for a government, but it would be extremely politically inconvenient were seniors uh, to experience an outbreak in a long-term care facility that had been denied access to vaccines 
then again, we talk about the bigger supply issues around vaccines, and you wonder if there's more factors at play here. Uh, Wendy, has the public scrutiny with some of these cases, uh, you know, we, we've seen them, especially in eastern Canada, with some of these private care facilities experiencing outbreaks, uh, some of them with horrific results. The death tolls are, are mind-boggling. Uh, has there been more public scrutiny? Do you perceive there to be more public eyes or even more oversight from authorities uh, with regards to how you're operating and the steps that you're taking? Oh, absolutely. Because in in our case, we as as um, we are a licensed uh, facility as well, and we do provide care, and we uh, have a contract uh, with Alberta Health Services to provide care. So we are uh, required to operate under uh, the accommodation standards. So we had uh, um, a visit from accommodation standards here, more than one. And also with respect to the continuing care health service standards, again, so we had inspections. So people, um, our, our organizations are, are um, able to get inspected on without notice. So they just drop in and they want to, you know, immediately we have to pay attention and walk them through our process. And uh, so that, that scrutiny is definitely there. And, and in particular, it seems uh, it, it is more so uh, on the pub- publicly funded sites. Um, so because of because of the media and and uh, because they are uh, being talked about so much and because uh, the population in the province really doesn't understand that organizations like ours don't fit under the long term care, uh, that nomenclature, they don't understand that they kind of lump us, you know, all together in that. And so we are all um under under scrutiny absolutely david's watching this morning and he, he tweets at me he says as my 93 year old mom sits and waits for her vaccination it's a shameful situation uh that alberta health services and the government are discriminating with getting shots in only government funded facility residents arms all seniors and workers in all facilities need to get the shot uh that from david uh don wendy before we thank you for your time is, is there any i always want to ask if is there any ground we've not yet covered we typically will ask for a call to action what do you want to leave our our audience thinking about don maybe we'll ask you first Well, I I would love a call to action for any of your listeners to contact their MLA, contact the Alberta Health um, Advocates Office um, to insist that this policy change be made and it be made immediately because here's the reality. And I mean, we all want to get back to life the way that it is. And the sooner we get our vulnerable seniors vaccinated and the care providers who care for them, the sooner that can happen. We know that age is one of the factors that results in poor outcomes with COVID. We know that it's a lot of the seniors that are in acute care um, in the ICU and are in hospital because of COVID. And so this needs to happen for the seniors themselves, for the care staff, for their families, because it is absolutely the ethical thing to do. It is based in science. It is the right thing to do. But not only that, you know, I believe that this is a step that needs to happen. It was an oversight and and we want to see government we want to see government add all licensed supportive living residents and their staff added to priority phase 1A of the vaccine rollout. Um, so I would encourage your listeners, please, please, please do what you can to help us advocate for this really important change. Don, I just want to fact check something so I can comment on, on, a, on something a, a viewer is is uh, submitting a comment on. If, if, if my mom or dad is living at Exquisite Care, uh, how 
what does the amount of government funding that you would receive on a monthly basis look like? Is it zero or is it a is it a discounted amount? Zero. Zero. So you receive zero government funding. We receive zero government funding. Okay. Okay. Wendy, our call to action. What is it? Our call to action is is very similar to what Don is saying. We are saying to contact the premier, contact the minister, contact the chief medical officer of health and the health advocate. That information is included in our Q and A on our on our website. So please, you can get that information there. Um, and we need people to say how important uh, licensed supportive living is uh, in the continuing care sector. Acknowledge that our seniors who are living in these sites uh, need the vaccination as much as, as the ones in the government funded sites. They all um, are at, a, at the relatively the same age. They have uh, several com comorbidities that could put them at risk for negative outcomes, including death. And nobody wants to see that regardless of whether a site is funded or not funded. Uh, ladies, I want to thank you so much for making time for us uh, today. Wendy King uh, with Canterbury Foundation, Don Harsh with Exquisite Care. You put a lot on our radar that, that may not have been there before. So we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having us. You bet. You can you can reach out to both of those guests, of course, on Twitter um, or by following the web links uh, each and every morning around 815. We release uh, the Twitter handles of the guests that we anticipate will be on the show uh, unless something changes there. So we encourage you to check them out and, and, and you know, feel free to be in touch. Many of you with some uh, we're getting a lot of perspective checks on our on our live chat here on YouTube uh, about your own families and how they've managed. You know, I, I read this from a listener that says, you know, this is from Tracy. She says it's been hard on everybody who's followed the rules. My 88 year old dad in long term care is willing to make sacrifices. Um, it's not perfect, but he's alive. That from Tracy. It's it's the, I mean, the courage, I think that some of these seniors are showing I hope that maybe some, I mean, I envision a world where some of you have, and I don't want to discount the tech savviness of some seniors, but I hope some of you have, have showed grandpa or grandma or mom or dad how to download the Real Talk podcast or how to stream live. It's super easy to do at ryanjesperson.com. Stream the audio on Mixler, or you, of course, can watch us on YouTube. And, and I would love the, the idea that we might have a direct line into a, a care center right now to pass along this message of encouragement. Um, you know, so many courageous individuals that are desperately missing their families. Uh, some of them, uh, I would imagine later in life, you know, you, you probably have those moments where you start to wonder you're aware of what your body's doing. You're aware of how your spirit feels. You start to wonder if it may be your final Thanksgiving, or if maybe this is your last holiday season or, or even if not, even if you say like hell, I'm going to be around for another 25 years, but it was your first you know, your granddaughter's first birthday or your grandson's first Christmas and the courage. And I've always avoided this word. I don't know why I'm going to say it now, but the stick to the the, the buy-in, the community buy-in. You haven't snuck in visits. You have seen your family only via FaceTime or through the glass. You've bought in. And it's been this community effort that's allowed. I mean, I don't even want to keep repeating the number. I don't even want to keep pointing out that exquisite care has had zero cases because I feel like I'm going to jinx them, but that's remarkable. And that comes from buy-in from, from a number of different people. I'm sure not everybody agrees with the perspectives presented here. Like I referenced a public school versus private school model. I'm sure that some of you will, uh, and, and, and the word discriminate is not inherently bad. 
discriminate is a verb. You're going to prioritize one over another. Some of you would discriminate against long term care centers that receive that are that are privately funded as opposed to public funding. To me, it seems pretty difficult to make the argument here. This should be based on science. It should be based on who is the most vulnerable based on what and how do we get them the vaccine first, right? I don't think I'm wrong on that. If I am, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter. I want to give a shout out to the team uh, at Kubi Energy. Of course, they present each and every Monday positive reflections. And through each and every week, they're installing solar. They're a Tesla certified installer. And each one of their technicians are journeyman electricians in BC and Alberta, which means you can trust the work they're doing for you. Plus, it's stress and hassle free. They handle all the paperwork, even the rebates. So you can check them online. Uh, Just follow the sponsors link at ryanjesperson.com to get in touch with the team at Kubi Energy. That's also where you can get a reminder of where those six locations are. Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Proud sponsors from day one of Real Talk. And right now they're featuring their dilly bars at those six locations. You grab a box of six of them, including the dairy-free ones if you're lactose intolerant. Dilly bars can still be a thing for you. Grab a second box. Go to the counter. Tell them you're a real talker. Say, we listen to Jesperson. They're going to give you a two-for-one deal. Thanks to the team at Dairy Queen for that. And Sam, can we throw up that graphic I showed you? Just wanted to, this is just uh, a quick flash in the pan. Thank you. We're doing what we can, along with the teams at Yvonne's Furniture and Greta Bar in Edmonton, just north of Jasper Ave on 109th Street. This Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, it's Healthcare Workers Appreciation Days, and the three of us are proud to join together to provide 80 free meals, a $25 value per, to a first-come, first-served healthcare workers again Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Greta opens at 4. You give them a phone call. You place your order. You show up. Curbside pickup with your hospital ID or whatever proves that you're a healthcare worker. Some of you are going to say, well, can, can, can I just wear my, uh, what do they call those things that, that everyone steals from the hospitals? Scrubs? The scrubs. <clears throat> scrubs? Everybody up. everybody wants scrubs. Maybe you just show up in scrubs. If you've got a stethoscope, you look like you're coming straight off Grey's Anatomy. Maybe that'll work. Uh, tell them you're a real talker. You no, work in don't, healthcare. Don't tell people how to cheat the system. I'm not telling them how to cheat the system. I'm just saying, if you show up straight from work with your ID tab and your scrubs, nobody's going to give you any hassle. We want to say thank you to you, our healthcare workers, and we're grateful for everything that you do. Also, a big shout out to the team at Alta Moving and Storage. If 2021 means a move for you, you want to put it in the hands of the team at Alta Moving and Storage, locally owned, locally operating, and they are problem solvers. That all starts with taking the stress out of the move with these pod style containers they drop them off at your house when you're ready to go they pick them up and drop them off at the new spot you need movers they got you covered too and of course long and short-term storage at alta moving and storage there's been a lot going on while we've been on the air so to speak while we've been doing the show live including at the alberta legislature uh the members uh basically a committee vote here uh executive council uh people wanted to see a motion for an executive council to produce the documents around this keystone xl investment the billion and a half dollars plus that six or seven billion dollar loan guarantee you know the fact that i'm saying six or seven billion reiterates why people are looking for this data this information uh people critics wanted to see these documents appear before the public accounts committee uh but today in public accounts uh basically it's been voted down and uh it's being criticized by by opposition as you might expect uh the conservative party united conservatives are are, are basically saying that they have to protect some of the confidentiality here 
Uh, critics like, you know, Shannon Phillips, former environment minister. Here's one that I'm picking just off the Alberta legislature hashtag says if a board or a corporation gambled away a minimum of a billion and a half dollars, uh, refusing to disclose risk analysis or how much money the deal might cost, they would be fired. The United Conservatives have refused basic transparency on the Keystone XL gamble, says uh, former minister Phillips, unseal the deal. Uh, you'll remember that Premier Jason Kenney promised, uh, to earn your trust back on January 1st and then on January 4th, talking about the the Aloha Gate, as it's come to be known, the travel scandal implicating some members of his government, uh, including the former Minister of Municipal Affairs. A lot of people are saying if you want to regain trust, this is where you could start by opening up these documents on Keystone XL. People rightfully asking, what does the government have to hide? That's something we'll continue to stick on. I want to let you know quickly when it comes to tomorrow's show, you're not going to want to miss it. We've got a couple of guests uh, coming up that we're very excited about, uh, and that includes the guy behind this book. Super excited about Cameron Hughes. He's going to join us. He is the king of cheer. You've seen this guy doing his thing in sporting venues around the world, including National Hockey League arenas. He's going to tell us some of the stories of, as he says, showing up, getting up, and never giving up from the world's most electrifying crowd igniter. That's coming up later this week. Panels on mental health. We're going to be talking about agriculture. And don't forget Vitor Marciano and Janice Irwin on Friday's roundtable. Thanks for tuning in to Real Talk. We'll see you tomorrow morning at 8.30 Mountain Time.